this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, this is one of our very special interview episodes, which means Chip Midnight. Chip. Chip. In the words of Stephen Piercy, I'm back for more. <laughs> we need a uh, reference for you. We need one of those. Um, remember when when uh, was it CBS would have a Saturday afternoon special and they would have that graphic that would come in like spinning colors. Yeah, we need one of those for for when Chip's here. Our special interviews. We should have little chip heads that like rotate in. I would like that. That would be good. Or we need chip as a 1980s uh on location local news person who like turns and looks at the camera real fast <laughs> over their shoulder yes. we got we got possibilities for you chip I'm, I'm, um, I'm all for it experiment away share with the audience who your interview subject was for this episode yeah so the interview subject for this one his birth name is Thomas Andrew Doyle. And if you're doing the the math in your head, Doyle rules. Yeah. You think about what the first letter of each of his names are Mm -hmm. that spells out Tad. Mm. So you guys may know Tad from the early sub pop days and Tad himself had a very bit part in the singles movie. Mm hmm. If you remember that part where I think somebody calls looking for somebody or something like that, he picks up a phone and they're trying to reach somebody, I think. And he's, I think he maybe says something about having the wrong number or that person's not here or something like that. But yeah, I, yeah, I vaguely remember that. I also remember him from the hype documentary. Oh, yeah. He has, he has some interview segments in that as well. Yeah. And we've talked about Tad on the podcast way long ago. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was definitely second or third year i'm guessing is when we did uh the tad album that escapes my i'm thinking of eight way santa but i know we didn't do eight way santa no inhaler we did inhaler that's it nice nice yeah yeah um you know i told i told him when we were talking that um you know i think maybe you guys can can relate to this there are specific songs specific albums that you sort of when you listen to it, it can kind of take you back in time. And when I graduated college, I I dreamt of being a rock and roll journalist writing for a major publication, but I was instead sort of writing for local free publications where I wasn't getting paid. And so I was uh, waiting tables at the time, my first couple years out of college, just while I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, but I do, I, I told him, like, I remember buying a used copy uh, probably a promo copy because it wasn't, it was it, it hadn't been like it had been out for years, but um, the infrared riding hood album that came out in 95. Mm. Mm. And I worked at Damon's place for ribs. <laughs> remember Damon's. Damon's. Yes. And it was about, a took me about from my apartment, took me about 
well, I'd say 14 minutes to get to work. And I, I distinctly remember having that CD in my car and I haven't listened to it in a long time, but getting ready to do this interview, I went back and, you know, started listening to stuff on Spotify and this thong, song, it's a tongue twister called Thistle Suit. Like as soon as I heard that, that CD ended up in a bag of stuff to sell back. You, you know, I don't know if you guys did this in the nineties, but I was constantly, it was like the stock market. I was shuffling CDs all the time, get a stack here, trade them in for beer money and, and, a, and a couple of CDs and then get another stack and sell them for trade them in. <laughs> so things were coming in and out of my collection pretty frequently. And, and that, that CD I'm sure ended up in a used bin for me because I needed beer money or something, but this will suit like, as soon as I heard it, like it put me back into that drive. Like I totally remember listening to that song as I was going to Damon's. <laughs> to Damon's. That's fun funny when, like, when you hear a like, song and it just takes you right to a moment. Yes. So, so I, I'm sure I listened to your Tad episode, but I don't remember it. Um, the thing that I find, you know, doing a little bit of that backwards research is that Tad was like really early in the sub pop days, but also yeah. took full advantage of, Nirvana jump into a major label and they signed with, uh, I think giant for their first mm -hmm. record inhaler. And then, um, maybe East West might've put out the second record. And so like they didn't, they didn't, they, they were rewarded by being on sub pop and, and the label sniffing around, but it wasn't like people, I didn't, I don't think they received the recognition of being an early sub pop band, I guess in my memory, maybe they did, but I don't know. I don't think at the time it was clear. I mean, we didn't have the internet like we did now. So, I mean, you just get a record and go, oh, what, what is this? Uh, I certainly remember them, like when we were working at the radio station, I remember the records being there, but I didn't have a clear idea of like who they were or how they tied into Seattle other than they were a Seattle band. So I didn't really realize like, oh, they go back to like the late 80s. Yeah. They're not just... You know, they didn't form after Nirvana formed sort of yeah. thing. And then I once I saw hype in 96, it made more sense. But for that first couple of years, it was like, I don't know, just another another Seattle band that's rocking. And I, I didn't know much about their history. And maybe again, maybe it was all written about back in the day and I just didn't read about it. But, um, you know, Tad was born in Idaho. Uh, you know, he said that to go see bands, he drove to Seattle or Vancouver or Portland, and that was like an eight-hour drive. So it wasn't like he just hopped in his car wow. and drove up, drove up the highway. So it was, um, so I, those were really cool stories that he tells me, sort of at the start of the interview about how a kid from Idaho ends up being in a grunge band that signed to Sub Pop. And, yep. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily the path you might think. So it's kind of cool. Excellent. Well. Oh, I think. One, so I do yep. want to apologize before we cut to this episode. Um, my computer has two USB ports on it. And I assumed that my microphone could work in either port. After the interview is done, I realized that it has to be in the second port and not the first port. Hmm. And so I apologize in advance. My audio sounds like I'm talking just through my regular laptop speaker microphone, which in fact is exactly what was recorded. So it's not terrible, <laughs> um, but it's certainly not great quality. So apologies about that. Well, at least you recorded something. Yes. Right. <laughs> A little bit of mini heart attack, I'm sure, when you get to the end of the episode and you realize, oh my God, did, did I get recorded? Yes. Uh, yeah, because uh, <laughs> we have good. definitely forgot to hit the record button occasionally. 
So without further ado, let's go to the interview with Tad. So I am here with Tad Doyle from the band Tad. Welcome to the Dig Me Out podcast. Thanks for having me on, Chip. Yeah. So uh, just before we started, uh, you mentioned that you were born in Boise, Idaho. How did you end up in Seattle? Well, there wasn't a heck of a lot going on musically in uh, in Boise at the time. We were always going to uh, other cities to check out shows because not a lot of uh, the kind of things that I was interested in was happening in Boise. Um, and so we would go to uh, Seattle or Portland or uh, Vancouver, BC or Salt Lake. And uh, that's kind of how that started. And I went to see a show in Vancouver, BC. Um, it was New Order, actually, playing at the some ballroom there. And I really loved the Pacific Northwest. So, I mean, it seemed kind of like a no brainer. And I, I had a friend that was playing with his older brother's band called the three swimmers in Seattle. And they were good friends with a band called gang of four, who I definitely just love that band. And, uh, so, it, and then, and I went to go see a show in, in, uh, Seattle where, Gang of Four were playing, and uh, the three swimmers were opening for them. And I had a blast there, and I go, wow, I love this place. And uh, so that seemed kind of like the obvious place to go. And uh, I moved there with a band that I was in at the time. All of us moved from Boise to Seattle. Uh, the, ba the band name was H Hour, and uh, we moved to Seattle in 1986 early 86. So perhaps this is where the American education system has failed me, or maybe I have failed the American education system. But um, <laughs> can you tell me, can you tell me, like, like, what is the drive from Boise to Portland, Seattle, Vancouver? Was it was it a couple hour drive? Or was it a full day trip? And you had to find a place to spend the night and all that kind of stuff? Uh, it was like a an eight hour drive, uh, maybe less depending on how many laws you broke to get there. But yeah. uh, I mean, it wasn't as, as as easy as a straight shot as it is now. There's been some uh, uh, interstates that have been built since then that make it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's generally about eight hours. Okay. That I was wondering if like if you were going to Seattle like every two or three days to see shows, but obviously with an eight hour drive, you're not doing that every every couple of days. It was probably more uh, infrequent than frequent. Absolutely. Uh, Salt Lake was closer and okay. uh, Portland was about the same distance when you get down to it. So how does a kid pre-internet mid 80s growing up in Boise, Idaho, discover Gang of Four and New Order? Well, I had friends who were very uh, had much their very much had their ears to the ground um, and 
is actually one of my roommates uh, who I wound up playing in a band with. Um, and, and, you know, we we would just listen to music. We would go to to local punk rock shows here and there at a place called uh, the Crazy Horse Saloon in Boise. And it had many, many different ownership changes throughout the years. And I don't even know if it's still there, but it was pretty much the only place that uh, like-minded uh, new music people's new new music fans would go to and uh, would see shows and and the community was there you know we would hang out um i i went to college at boise state university for music too so i had okay. a connection with people there but uh most of it was made outside of school i mean yeah. so how how you know I'm, I'm i guess i'm fast forwarding a little bit how does somebody who likes new order and uh, much more gang of four i can understand but who likes new order end up making the kind of music that you wind up making um you know it's just i i, I don't know if there's a formula to it <laughs> I, I would say it was more of a just a direction that i wanted to go into um yeah. I, I mean if you look at the progression of my musical tastes over time i i was a classical and pop kid. I, I loved AM radio uh, back when AM radio was amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I listened to a lot of that. And then I progressed into jazz and fusion as a, as a result of being in school and studying music. And, uh, you know, and, and then punk rock came along and I'm like, oh man, this is amazing i love the unconventional unconventionality of it i don't know if that's a word yeah yeah but uh i i really enjoyed the uh the immediacy and the rebellion aspect to it because uh i was pretty much a loner in school i uh didn't really have a lot of friends so i mean i really related to a lot of the punk rock stuff when it came out and and that was kind of the impetus to move on into to different things. And I, I feel like I've always moved into new stuff as I've progressed in life. So it seemed like a natural progression for me to be able to go into with my record of listening to the bands that I listened to as a kid. And that being a certain type of uh, influence and moving into what would became uh called grunge i guess yeah you know that makes a lot of sense to me i grew up in the suburbs on basically fm radio and mtv it sounds like i'm a, just a couple years younger than you but i and the listeners of the podcast know because i make no bones about it i i grew up on 80s hair metal um i always joke that the bigger the hair the tighter the pants the more i probably like the band right uh, <laughs> but you know as cliche as it is when I was in college, I, I went to Ohio State University, which did not surprisingly have a great college radio station. I had heard when I was in high school that college radio was kind of the thing to look forward to in college. And we really didn't have a good college radio station. But, and again, this is cliche, I saw Nirvana on the Nevermind tour early on and literally changed, changed my life. Uh, again, People who have listened to this podcast have heard this story, but I saw Brett Michaels from Poison play like on a Monday or Tuesday night in front of about 800 people. 
and three nights later saw Nirvana playing in front of 200 people. And it, it literally changed my life. Um, was there a band like that for you that literally changed your life or was it, uh, did you, did you just ease into or, or dive into the punk rock thing? And, and that was once you were in, you were in for good. Well, uh, I, I have to be completely honest here. There isn't a hell of a lot of concerts or shows that I went to, um, in my formative years. I mean, yeah. basically for being isolated, uh, geographically, but I, I would say that gang of four was very very influential to me i mean uh, i i totally resonated with andrew gill's guitar playing i mean uh feedback and the chaos of it and the percussiveness that he brought and uh it it was not it, it was amazing to me because it wasn't predictable it wasn't you know abac type of structures and there were verses and choruses that i could recognize it was more chaotic and i think that's what drew me to that and definitely became an influence on what i do but uh yeah it's i don't know if i'm answering your question yeah yeah no yeah that makes yeah again that makes a lot of sense that um gang of four would be that band for you that sort of may or and may many, not be responsible and many, and many many more oh know? sure my brother gave me a uh, the first black sabbath record for christmas when it came out and that really freaked my mom out which made me like it even more that's how old i am so <laughs> i think i'm much older than you i, I i'm not sure uh, i'll be 52 this year oh great yeah Youngster. Uh, <laughs> well for me it was ozzy and i remember being um my Aussie story is that when I was in fifth grade, I lived in Connecticut. I lived in Connecticut when I was a uh, elementary school, and, and a girl had moved to Connecticut from California, and all the fifth grade boys had a crush on her. And my best friend at the time lived pretty close to her, and so we would often walk by her house hoping to catch her attention. And she had an older brother who would always be out in the yard playing football, and so as a way for us, you know, our fifth grade minds to integrate ourselves into into this girl's life we started hanging out with her brother and her brother was a big ozzy fan and at the time you know we were listening to ario speedwagon and journey and the police and we both went out and bought blizzard of oz and sort of studied up on it and and it became like we became obsessed with it just so that we had a reason to stop stop by her house and talk to her brother in hopes that someday she would come outside uh but it's funny because I knew about Black Sabbath, but it took me many, many years to go back and listen to Black Sabbath. Like I, I was like an Ozzy going forward kind of guy. So yep. it, was, it was weird to go back and realize that he had had a whole career prior previous to prior. all that. Yeah. Yeah. So because this podcast is about the nineties, that's where we get up to, you know, so, so you were in Seattle, you were playing drums in a band and then I, I you recorded a single on your own right you played all the instruments and 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 that sub sub pop ended up putting that out and that's sort of where had the band started is that right yeah pretty much i mean uh i i had uh a tax return and i went and recorded three to four songs with uh legendary engineer producer jack and dino who wasn't so legendary at the time <laughs> and uh ha had a lot of fun doing it and uh, i played all the instruments mostly 
I, I started with drums and then I switched to guitar. And then I, the last thing I did was bass and then eventually vocals, but um, it wound up being those songs that Sub Pop released. And the whole plan is that I was going to, to go out on the road and uh, have drums and bass recorded. And I was going to play guitar and do vocals. Yeah. And uh, it soon revealed itself to me that, uh, at the time, the people that I had experience with Soundmen did not like to turn up drums as loud as they should be yeah. in order to make it visceral um, for the type of music I wanted to do. And it also wound up being a heck of a lot more work than I really wanted to put into it. So I was I joined a band as a, se a second drummer initially. It was a band called Bundle of Hiss. And that wound up being uh, Kurt Danielson, who wound up being in TAD. And yep. uh, the drummer was Dan Peters, who wound up being in Mud Honey. And that was their band together. And another guy named Jamie Lane, who was playing guitar. And it, it, it was also revealed that my drumming style didn't really work well with Dan's. So um, I said, well, I've been playing guitar lately. And the guy said, well, hey, why don't you just bring your guitar rig and we'll start uh, messing with that. And they all liked what I was doing. Um, so it, we put out a few recordings as bundle of hits towards the end. Um, I got in towards the very end of the band yeah. and then uh, it was a, a, it was a no brainer to just grab Kurt. And uh, when I decided that I wanted to do, Tad, which wasn't going to be called Tad. I didn't even like the name of the band being my name yeah. initially, but uh, you know, through many discussions, we decided, okay, it's it's going to look great on posters. It's going to be short, simple, and easy to remember. But that wasn't the reason. Uh, but yeah, I, and Kurt knew a guy named uh, Gary Thorstenson, a guitar player, and. Uh, he was friends with Jonathan Poneman of Sub Pop, and he was actually in a band with Jonathan at one point. And I knew a drummer from a band called Death and Taxes who was mind-blowingly great um, and still is. His name's Steve Wiederhold, uh, also known as Steve Weed. And uh, that's kind of, we, we figured that we'd just get together and jam and see what happened. And within... Uh, two or three weeks we had a record ready to go and record and we recorded it with jack and dino so those songs for god's balls were less than a month old wow. when we recorded them and if you can help me and the listeners sort of contextualize what seattle was like so so grunge probably wasn't a word at the time sub pop was a relatively new startup label uh, were there hopes and dreams and were you thinking that this is going to be a viable thing or was this just a couple guys who were hanging out, who got along, who played well together, just going to record something for the, for the sake of history to have something or, or was the dream really to, to see how far you could take it when you first started? Well, for the band had once, once we started doing playing together and recording, it wasn't from my aspect, it was, my my point of view we weren't trying to do anything um except be uh low-end heavy um crushing rhythmically intense um 
And a lot of people probably won't recognize this, but we're very influenced by soul music and and uh, funk, and that groove that that soul and funk had really played into what the band Tad was doing as a band. Um, and we we just wanted to be, you know, the punk rock aspect of it came in is like we wanted to be obnoxious and and. Uh, be scary pretty much be scary sounds that uh um that would either repel people or make them want to come closer yeah so it's it's, it's funny you say that because I do, I do recognize the melody and like i don't know that i would have said i i recognize the funk and the soul but i remember the first time i ever saw the melvins and and I saw them open for Tomahawk, Mike Patton band. And I was at the venue and I could not find a far enough corner to stand to not hear them. Like it was just noise <laughs> to me. Uh, Job accomplished. Come, <laughs> right. Yeah. I have since come to love that band and I've seen them a number of times and I definitely appreciate and recognize what they're doing and can totally get into it. But at, when I was seeing them then, it was. And it sounds like almost like that's what you were going for as well when you started. Yeah, well, um, I became I came late to the game with Melvin's, although we were pretty much in the same geographic area. Um, I had heard of them, um, but actually, many years previous to that, the Melvin's came to Boise and played at that little punk rock club I was talking about. Yeah, and a lot of my friends. Um, walked out and said god if i wanted to hear black sabbath <laughs> i would have you know took a time machine back to 1972 you know and there's uh and i'm like well you know whatever i kind of I, I was on the fence about what they were doing and it and it's since then it's like i i realized the genius of the melvins and yes. and definitely um love them as music musicians and as a band and all that but uh, that, that, that's the thing is they're they're great musicians and and when I, when I first saw them it's just they turned it up so loud that I think I was completely unprepared for this the the wave of loudness um, but when you when you boil it down yeah they're 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 great musicians and it's not just for the sake of noise yeah definitely and sometimes yeah. you never know with buzz it might be just for the sake of noise <laughs> true you true. never know true. <laughs> so you put out your first couple of albums on Sub Pop and, and, you know, again, kind of putting us into that, into that world. Did it feel like there was something special happening at the time? Uh, did it feel like a, a volcano ready to, to explode? Or was it just these guys that you were playing, not just in your band, but other bands that you're just going out to see, going out, drink beers with, hanging out with, um, was it just like a more of a fraternity or did, did you see that, that these bands were all, you know, just ready to explode? I, I didn't see it as the latter. I saw it as, uh, and, and this is again from a, a kid that was coming from a very uh, conservative background as far as music is concerned and moving to a, what I consider to be a big city. And I remember Mark, arm joking with me i said man i 
he, he says, why did you move here? And I said, because I wanted to live in a big city. And he goes, this is a farm town. <laughs> and it pretty much is, you know, I, it's not anymore. But at that time, it was, you know, not a lot going on. And the the city was always trying to suppress any kind of uh, art and music for God knows whatever reason. But uh, you, it was hard to get all ages shows going here in Seattle. And I don't know if that's changed at all, but uh, it's uh, yeah, there's we, we would go see each other's bands. And that's basically who was going to the shows then. I mean, there wasn't a lot of outside people going to uh, local shows because, uh, you know, I think most everybody had a job, you know, yeah. <laughs> and a life. <laughs> but me being a musician, uh, you know, I, I've always been challenged by employment. So, um, you know, that's what I do. And, and yeah. that, that's where my heart is. And, and I think that's what drew us all to each other. And uh, there's just a handful, maybe two, three, four places at most to play out in front of your friends other than house parties. Yeah. You know, um, and, and while Seattle may have had like the bigger buildings and the bigger population, in some senses, was it sort of like Boise in that, like, I don't I don't know tour routing very well, but I would imagine Seattle sort of on the outskirts of any sort of tour routing. So were you not getting a ton of shows coming through there? Well, it started to, um, it started happening, um, or, you know, 88, 89 more shows started coming through because there was actually venues that they could get booked into. And, uh, those were the four, three to four clubs that I mentioned at the time that were happening. Um, and it was, you know, we, we'd have a few uh underground acts come through i mean the bigger ones it was it was very polarized there was either a band that nobody knew about except for a few people or there was the uh the poisons that would yeah. <laughs> play bigger venues you know um yeah. and those were always seemed to be favored um uh, because I, I think it just came down to uh the venues that would put on those types of shows were paying taxes and uh, were part of the the civic duty of Seattle for whatever reason. And they were, you know, not shitting on anybody's parade, but it was safer music. Oh, and I've, I've always been drawn to more extreme stuff. Um, personally, I can't speak for anybody else, but that's, that's where I was at. Yeah. So you're putting out music on sub pop and as somebody, like I mentioned earlier, I, I was a writer in the, I started in the mid nineties. Do you remember and, and do you care about, and do you seek out when people were writing about your music? Do you remember like getting that first review somewhere, maybe by somebody that you didn't know? Yeah. And that was mostly because of a uh, sub pop. I, I, you know, they, they were really good about, collecting all that info and they, and they had the vision i mean they had a vision of like we're going to go here with this and the, the joke that they're going to you know their whole slogan was uh were our quest for world domination and uh you know it, it was kind of a joke but at the same time there was some some energy behind that and i think that's what they they went after and certainly they they got serious about it and there was a publicity department eventually. And, uh, 
it wasn't just a bunch of their friends that were uh, helping them out, but it became friends that were working for them and actually getting paid something to do what they were doing. Yeah. And, and uh, it was a perfect storm of just really cool stuff that happened. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I was able to be here and be a part of it. So I think it's a testament, right, to putting putting the work in as a label, putting the work in as a band, could eventually pay off pretty at some point. Yeah, and I don't know if that's that's as realistic of a of a thought now in today's yeah. um, environment. But uh, yeah, I mean, at that time, uh, I don't I don't know what year the internet was came around, but I think it was 93, maybe 92. I don't know. I, I know that we had to, whenever we toured, we had to use actual maps <laughs> yeah. at that time. And there was no smartphones. I, uh, I, I am constantly amazed at those days and wondering how did, how did I get from place to place without the benefit of my phone? <laughs> you just did. Cause you had to. Yeah. I, I have, I have, uh, my youngest is 17, so still a teenager, but I often will hold up my phone and say, do you understand what you have in your hand? You have a movie player, uh, a, you have like a, a VCR, you have a record player, you have a camera, you've got a video camera, you've got a map, you've got all in the palm of your hand. It just, it, it, it blows my mind. If I had told 18 year old me that I'd have all that in my hand, I would have never believed it. Yeah, there's more computing power in a, a little handheld box than there was that was used to send men to the moon. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that's so, no joke either. Probably 10 to 20 times more power. And so that's actually, that, that actually uh, uh, makes me think about, so Seattle was sort of a, was it a, um, was Boeing there? Yep. So, Still there. Yeah. And so Microsoft, so was it, was it sort of outside of what you were, was it, more of a tech kind of town? Yeah, I would say so. Um, the thing is, is I was aware of that aspect of it, and that's kind of what made the city grow so much and there was so much uh, money here. Yeah. Um, that was very helpful. I found this on the web. For um, the so much money here. Check it out. Boy, I don't know why Siri just chirped up. <laughs> Siri's got something to add about Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't no, know okay. why that happened. <laughs> Technology, I'm baffled. Yes. But yeah, I mean, it certainly played into, uh, it was a weird mix of things, you know, yeah. um, the tech sector and um, people like me and my, my friends. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, there is crossover there, you know, a lot of people are the same, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, that also makes me think Starbucks started in Seattle, uh, like similar to Sub Pop, was it, was it sort of this growth, um, were you going to Starbucks early on, uh, or, or was Starbucks always sort of a, a more of a corporate kind of a major well, label coffee versus an indie label coffee? Well, I think initially it started out as a good idea. Um, I, I, I don't recall where in my mind Starbucks went bad, but they did in my <laughs> mind. And part of it is because I don't respect the way they make coffee. They burn it. It's too yeah. hot. The burn, the bean gets sour and it's, 
you know, they don't know how to make coffee, oddly enough. And people love that. Yeah. It's like, if you've had a really good cup of coffee, and there's many, many really good coffee places in Seattle that, you know, never, they're just one little niche in a, a little cafe, and they make the most amazing coffee. That's where you want to go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, most of the world just, I like my Starbucks, and it looks great, <laughs> and I like to have it in my hand. And I like to say that I'm getting my Starbucks for yeah for whatever it, they call it that instead of coffee, and I think that Starbucks actually was the impetus for ruining pricing for coffee as well. Yeah, you know? I mean, who's who would have thought? You're saying like who would have thought that you you'd have a phone where you could do all this stuff on it? Who would have thought that people would be paying upwards of four to twenty bucks for a cup of coffee? Right. You know, right. which is insane. I remember my father saying, if it's if I gotta pay 10 cents for a cup of coffee, I'm not buying <laughs> it. You know, it was a nickel then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you know, I think this does have some parallels to sub pop, right? Because all of a sudden, um I'm trying to remember my history lesson. You lived it, but um the Soundgarden was sort of the first was sort of the first band to break out of the sub pop and and sort of bring like big, huge attention to the label before mm -hmm. Nirvana. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say they're they're uh, definitely at the time they're probably the uh, the model of what sub pop was doing. Yeah. yeah, and then to your point, you know, and I'm definitely guilty of it. After I discovered Nirvana, then kind of went out and looked for the sub pop, you know, sticker on on albums and bought it because of that. It's similar to being the Starbucks, like I'm going to get my Starbucks cup of coffee. It was similar. I'm going to buy whatever soap pops putting out. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people did that. And, the, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that mindset. I, I, I have to say, um, yeah. uh, so pop has put out a lot of amazing music and they, they've been had their, uh, ear to the rails for a long time. And, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with, uh, branding identification with logos. Yeah. So what led to you leaving Sub Pop and signing to Giant? Well, uh, we wanted to, uh, a couple of things. We wanted to have bigger budgets to be able to do, spend more time in the studio, which we felt was um, an interesting proposition. And we also wanted to get our art out to a broader audience, which we felt that, um, sub pop was limited in that respect and, and 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 we weren't alone in that you know that's the same reason that soundgarden moved on that's the same reason that nirvana moved on yeah. um but uh you know i that was that was pretty much it i mean the the thought of having uh a bigger budget for recording was really enticing and and uh of course we pissed away all our amused, all our money when we got a recording budget <laughs> and weren't forward thinking like, you know, at least uh, a couple of our compadres had put aside some money and not used all their recording budget for recording and whatever else shenanigans they were into like we did. Yeah. So but, uh, I think that's interesting. And that is something that I hope this podcast can help, you know, listeners understand because it's stuff that I don't understand. And if it's not, I, I don't, I don't want to look, I don't want to uh, ask for your accounting, but um, 
can you tell me a little bit about signing to a label and and the perks of that and the kind of money you were getting? You know, I think um, was it the drummer from Semisonic wrote the book about you know being in Semisonic and having a hit and about how things that at least back then the average music listener like myself didn't realize that you know you're 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 paying for the catering at your videos you're paying for certain things that if you sign a huge record deal that doesn't mean that you're walking out with a million dollar check it means that that money has to go back and fund the record and the tour and all the stuff is it is that right yes and no in in some periods of uh of the record business that that was the truth like you 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 know, you got a contract with a, a million bucks or whatever. There were some bands that got that. Um, but the the reality of it is most of the time is to keep in mind, and especially if any there's any aspiring musicians out there that think they're the, the be all end all is getting signed. And I'll preface this by saying that we had it so good with Sub Pop. I don't think that we should have ever left. Um in retrospect, you know, retrospect's always 2020, but uh, <laughs> right. it was, uh, we had it good. And uh, I wished, you know, had we, we would have stayed with it because A, the label understood us. They knew who we are. We, we were friends with them. Um, when we moved on to other, um, other labels, it was, it became, we became painfully aware that the business of music is a music business you know it's it's business it has nothing to do with artist artist welfare or integrity or anything like that so um it's funny because like i i i'll have bands contact me about recording them and i say well what's your goal and they say well we want to make a demo so we can get signed and, it's, and i i'll ask them like what does getting signed mean to you right and uh it's usually uh shrouded in a bunch of glitter and rainbows and you know starlit nights you know it's amazing you know blah 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 lobsters dinners we're gonna get the big car all this shit and that's not the reality of it at all yeah. uh, that's that's few and far between and uh as we've seen uh, certainly with uh what happened here in seattle there's a lot of people who did make a famous thing and it wound up killing them yeah you know it's it's not an easy thing to go through and i i i am so lucky that in my mind that i didn't go down these rabbit holes and, and i get to go in i get to go out in public and not be recognized now especially since i'm older <laughs> right. it's it's great i mean it wasn't <laughs> that way for a while but now i can go anywhere and like i'm basically invisible and i like that yeah. I don't like having to deal with, you know, like the the stuff that some of my uh, contemporaries had to deal with, especially, yeah. you know, like Kurt Cobain. He had he couldn't go anywhere. Uh, his life was invaded and made miserable by paparazzi and, you know, all this other shit. So, I mean, be careful what you ask for. That's all I got to say as, yeah. a, as a, an aspiring artist or musician. And, and I, go ahead. So I, was, I interviewed the band Ivy. I don't know if you are familiar with them, but they told me that they signed their first record deal, I think, with Atlantic Records, or, or no, it was one of the sub subsidiaries called Seed Records. And you know, going back to what you said, where where people think that it's going to be a million dollar record deal and lobster and caviar, 
they said they signed the first record deal in the height of the alternative, you know, movement for $15,000. And they said they ended up having to pay their lawyer 15 or 12,000 or something, something like that. It was basically, they made no money by signing a record deal because they ended up paying their lawyer to help them negotiate everything. And so, you know, those, those ideas that I had that, that you guys were all getting these huge contracts and the reality is most of you weren't. Yeah. And if, you know, it, you got to realize, especially new people in music that, uh, you know, Billie Eilish is the exception. She's not the rule. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they, they were making records in their bedroom, her and her brother. Yeah. Um, and they wound up making a, you know, huge amount of money and was able to take care of, but you, you look at how miserable she is, you know, yeah, she's miserable. She's not happy. I mean, to me, happiness is more worth more than, you know, all the crap that goes with it. If you're going to be an artist, um, and I think Banksy understands that. Yeah. You know, nobody knows who the heck that is. <laughs> right. And and that's cool. Uh, but, you know, it, we realized that there was nobody who understood us in all these bigger labels that we wound up working with. And one of the, one of the, I laugh at this story now, but it was pretty painful at the time. We are uh, a manager called up um east west electra and said what's going on with the tad record and they said who uh whoever answered the phone and they said well we're, we're gonna have, hold on i'm gonna transfer you to somebody and that's when our ar person a and r person got fired about that time and that's yeah. pretty much the kiss of death for any any band if you your a and r person gets fired you're you're done the same thing happened to a band called Clutch. We were on the same label with them. Oh, yeah. And uh, the same thing happened to them. Uh, they moved on and became fruitful, you know, uh, semi-successful. But, uh, yeah, it's it's business. It has nothing to do with art. So I, I and the good thing is, like, you don't have to deal with these clowns anymore. You can just put your own stuff out, and if you're doing it right, and people recognize it, that's great. I mean, I've been going down a rabbit hole with uh, Mac DeMarco lately, who's the antithesis of music business guy. Yeah. And uh, I, I really admire him, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know. Yeah. I, I had dreams of either writing for Rolling Stone or becoming a music publicist. And uh, I'm glad that neither of those came true. Because I remember one time being at South by Southwest and in line and hearing that people behind me that worked for a label talking about all the different showcases they had to go to and doing it with enthusiasm, like a fake enthusiasm. You could tell that they did not want to go see these bands, but it's like, yeah, I'm going to see our current pop kid and then I'm going to go see the dance band and then I'm going to go see the metal band and, and getting into that position where we're to your point where it's a business. I'm, I'm glad I avoided that. I think I would have hated my job, hated my life. Right. Yeah. And and I think what I would add to that is like, don't, don't not dream. You you got to dream. You got to have aspirations. Um, and and don't don't let people you know shit all over them. And uh, just keep keep moving forward. And eventually, you're either going to keep doing it, 
and you realize that you're doing it because you you have to and you need to and you want to and you're doing it for yourself that's that's where it that's where the real deal is uh if you're doing it for somebody else or you're doing it to look good or to get the girl or the guy or the car you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons yeah for sure do, do you have a ridiculous story of a label whining and dining you or doing something that at, at that point you were just like this is absolutely stupid insane and awesome at the same time <laughs> well there's many but uh <laughs> We were recording, uh, I think it was in, in, I can't remember which record it was. Yeah, it was Inhaler. We recorded Inhaler and we were doing mixes of it. And our manager at the time said that they talked to the label and they heard the songs. And the conversation was pretty much like this. The, uh, the label was saying, hmm. You know, we're not we're not hearing any singles here, and that that meant that they weren't hearing any pop songs. Yeah, and and we 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 are all laughing. Go, what the fuck are you? You realize the band that you signed to your label? <laughs> I mean, we're the antithesis of that type of shit. You know? Yeah. And and that that was very comical and uh, disheartening at the same time. And now it's just laughable. Yeah. Uh, if we can go, so I, I suspect that not just musicians, but many people have these, these memories that when you hear a song, it kind of takes you back. And, uh, leading up to doing this interview, I kind of went back and listened to, uh, Infrared Riding Hood. And I was waiting tables when that album came out and I bought the CD. And when I, when I threw it on Spotify, last week just to kind of revisit the record um uh, uh i'm trying to remember this oh, uh, uh, uh see if i can say this thistle suit that's a hard it's a hard thing to say um, thistle suit yeah yeah that's like i can distinctly my my drive to to the restaurant was about 15 minutes and when i had that cd in like i could listen up to maybe the third or fourth song on the, on the cd but um like I was instantly taken back to driving my car on my way to work when I heard that song, just remembering listening to that so much. Um, do you do you have songs like that that take you back to very specific specific places and times that if you listen to, you're kind of transported back to those those times? Uh, yeah, but nothing specifically is jumping out at me. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, well... Yeah. I, I mean, I, I moved down to San Diego to be with my wife at the time. She wasn't my wife. And that was, uh, I don't know, know how many years ago, but um, I remember I had quit. I basically quit playing. I wasn't doing any kind of music. I decided that I just don't want to play music anymore. I, I went for two years um not playing anything or even being interested in talking about music i was like on this other trip um and i was going down the 805 heading home and i heard uh what specifically song it was uh i think it was warp it was 
it was one of the Black Sabbath songs. I can't remember specifically, but that song brought me to tears. And I'm like, oh man. And that was the impetus that's like, I got to play music again. I can't not do it. I yeah. have to keep moving forward. And that song just brought me to tears. It's just like gorgeous. Yeah. Um, God, I wish you could remember what song it was. <laughs> oh, it was the one with generals gathered in their oh, mass. Yeah. I can't, War Pigs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. War Pigs. But that killed me. It was so amazing. And by today's standards, you know, I still think it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, if we can jump back quickly to the 90s. So, so uh, uh, East West and our guy gets fired. And you said that was basically the end for the most part of Tad. Uh, well, it was the end of our relationship with large labels, I'd say. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Were you, were you on tour at the time? I, I hear so many horror stories of bands being on tour and getting a call saying, yeah, uh, your tour support is, has ended. Uh, <laughs> circle the wagons and come home because the label has fired everybody. Were you on a tour at the time or were you at home? Um, God, I don't rightly remember but I, I do remember that one time uh when we we're out touring for inhaler and we we're opening for primus at the time and uh we got notice from a bank that we had our bank account with the they called us and said look uh there's this guy who's trying to withdraw all the money from your bank account which wasn't a hell of a lot of money at the time you know yeah. under 10 grand but um, that was startling and it wound up being, uh, the manager that we had at the time, he was trying to rip us off and move on. And, uh, at that time we, we fired him pretty much right away after that. And, yeah. and he didn't tell us that, uh, that, uh, God, I don't even remember the label now that we were with at the time, giant Warner that giant Warner was upset because of the poster that we had for touring. And we didn't have anything to do with making the poster. It was their art department that made it. So like, we are baffled as to why we just think it was kind of like a, a, uh, a bait and switch thing to, to deflect blame for, uh, dropping us essentially. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were out on tour. And, you know, you, you hear that kind of stuff and you're like, normally it would really mess with some band psyches, but we're just so much of a, in our music and being a music machine that it was like, it doesn't matter. We're going to keep moving. Yeah. Who gives a shit what these people are doing? You know, but, you know, missing the tour support was, was, uh, you know, a problem, you know, not being able to pay some of the bills. Like, uh, I think it was the first time that we were in a tour bus and that was, uh, something that we probably shouldn't have been doing anyway, to begin with, there was nothing wrong with touring in a van and pulling a trailer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one or two of the members, not myself wanted to have that experience and why not? So we did it. Um, but yeah, that that would be uh, that that would normally destroy a band, you know. Yeah. But we we held on and and did as much as we could. Um. 
and, and enjoyed doing it right up to the end, pretty much. You mentioned Primus. What other, can you rattle off a list of other, other bands that you toured with? Uh, well, there was Nirvana, of course. There was, we did a, we did our first European tour and it was their first European tour together. And let's see, then we played in the States with them. We did tours with Primus, uh, a band from Ireland called Therapy. Oh, yeah. In Europe, we did a tour with, uh, and it might have been the United States too. And then there was Slash's Snake Pit, which we always <laughs> thought was very funny that anybody would put us with that band. <laughs> and uh, God, there, there's a whole bunch of others I'm remembering. I can't remember. Because yeah. basically, I don't. I move forward and don't look back on my life. So I, I'm sorry I don't have a good answer for no, you. No, no, that's good. It, it's funny. Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, I just got a few more questions, but this is one of them. Is are you are are you ever surprised, amazed, um, whatever, when you pick up a magazine or turn on the TV or turn on the radio or whatever, and, and you see people that you grew up playing with. And, and that, that music has kind of transcended generations. Um, you know, every classic rock station, hard rock station will still play Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam. I mean. As they yeah. should. Yeah, yeah. It, when you mentioned therapy, like I, they have a new record coming out really soon. I was not, not shocked because I know that they've been pretty consistently putting out stuff. But the fact that a band like Therapy is putting out music 30 years after they started is, is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And that that's a testament to them being friends, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I think I can't speak for them. I'm assuming that they're in it for the right reasons because they enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think so, it's cool. Some still nineties related and then we'll get to what you've been doing. Uh, I just rattling off the people that you've worked with, right? You said Jack and Dino before he was, Jack and Dino, capitalized letters. Uh, Steve Albini, Butch Vig. I mean, all those guys back in the time when you were working with them, were they all sort of uh, lowercase producers? Yeah, uh, or, every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and and here's the thing. This is what some a lot of people don't know is that every every engineer that we ever recorded with, shortly after Nirvana went and recorded with, and wow. I think that that they may have. You know, I, I remember making a joke with those guys in the van. We were in the in the in the van in Europe together. There was eleven of us in a, a Sprinter van in Europe. It was very uncomfortable um, and hilarious at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And I remember joking and saying, "You know, don't forget who we are when you guys make it big." <laughs> and it was basically a joke. We we're poking fun at them because. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, their live show wasn't as good as their recordings most of the time. I mean, there's a lot of problems. Uh, but I, yeah, it was it was funny to make that and and then they were kind of blowing up yeah. to being quote unquote as popular as the Beatles. Right, right. You know. And I still think it's funny because <laughs> I know who they are, you yeah. know. Uh, so are you in San Diego now? No, I live in Seattle again. Okay. Okay. Um, and like I said, so one more, one more nineties question. And I'm just wondering, and it, it plays into what you're doing today. So 
Um, one of the things that did dig me out, guys talk about a lot, is in the 90s, uh, taking advantage of the entire CD length and bands kind of filling it up uh, all 72 minutes and and secret tracks and bonus tracks. And the in, end of um, Infrared Riding Hood is Mystery Copter, which is, uh, you know, starts off and there's some space and then there's sort of this noise. And I'm wondering if that if Mystery Copter was a precursor to what you're doing today, because I know that you're you're getting ready to put out a, a, an album, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a uh, it's not a traditional rock record. Um, it's a little bit I don't know. Is, do you use the word ambient sounding? Well, uh, I think if we're talking about the new record that I think you're talking about, Forgotten Sciences. Yeah. That's 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 more of a rock record than I've been writing for oh, the past okay. few years. But in my mind, that's what it is. But yeah, I guess some people could call it ambient. Uh, uh, but no, I don't think I don't think they're related. Mystery Copter or the track at the end of the CD. I don't think it's related at all. I mean, I've always been a fan of experimentation and. Uh, being very uh, noise oriented as opposed to musically oriented, uh, yeah. which for me is the same thing, but just speaking for other people to understand. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, yeah, you'll have to make that deci decision for yourself. If you listen to it. Um, I, I, so I think I, you know, maybe I, maybe heard, I, I thought I saw something maybe on YouTube or something that was like a teaser for the record. And it's, I don't remember whether were there vocals and yeah, definitely. Oh, and I definitely missed out on that. I'll go back. And no, listen. there's vocals. <laughs> okay. And, uh, well, it's not traditional vocals, though. I mean, okay. it's a, a lot of uh, I, I did I did four part harmony on this record, which I've never done before with myself, and yeah. uh, there's there's actual lyrics and. Uh, vocals being sang as well as spoken oh awesome all kinds of stuff but uh you know i played drums on it i uh just a lot of synthesizer work in it and uh a lot of blood sweat and blood sweat and giggles not tears <laughs> it, uh, i had a lot of fun making it is it is it did you billy eilish it and make it all yourself in your house yeah that's all i've done ever since the breakup of uh uh well there's two bands after tad there was yeah. uh hog molly which was followed right after that and that went more more into punk roots then and then there was uh brothers of the sonic cloth that kind of went into the doom metal stoner realm yeah. um and so every every record i've done since has been since has been different and uh you know, that's that's my goal is always to to do something fresh and not not rely on formula. Um, I think a lot of bands rely too much on doing the same thing over and over again. And I, I think they ha think they have to do that for identification purposes so that yeah. their fan base doesn't disappear. I don't know. I don't know what the theory is behind that. Or maybe that's just all they can do. I mean, I, I would like to challenge myself to to be the guy that tries to do some 
does something fresh every time. That's yeah. that's what I want to do. So you mentioned the sort of like uh, you sort of laugh when you see the Nirvana guys or some of the other guys because um, you knew you know where they came from and everything. Is there still like do you still hang out with anybody uh, from from the nineties in Seattle? Are, are people still around or they're still you can still get together and ever go grab dinner or anything? Or? Yeah, there's a few people. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I saw Mark Arm just couple weeks ago at a friend's house uh, uh a dinner party thing and yeah. uh it was good to see him and his wife and uh i talk with kim thile a lot uh we we keep in touch it's usually phone he keeps really uh different hours than i do i'm, <laughs> I'm usually getting up around 4 a.m and he's usually just going to bed at 4 a.m <laughs> so yeah. it's uh you know but we're we're good buds and you know, it was fun doing the Tad Garden stuff with him. Oh yeah, I forgot three about other that. Soundgarden guys. Um, yeah, do you keep do in you touch with at, a few? Do you? And and I apologize for not knowing this, but do you do um, any sort of album anniversary celebrations? Like, do you play shows to, to celebrate that 30th anniversary of a release or anything? Um, no, because uh, here's the thing: I, I get a lot of emails about this too is like when's there going to be a tad reunion and and sub pops asked me numerous times and i'm like well i i don't think there's ever going to be one i don't feel that i'm in the same space that i was then when i was yeah. making that type of music and i think in a lot of ways it would it would uh it wouldn't serve up to the legacy that we created you know and i, I always like to say is you know, to people who write me and say, you know, why, why, why isn't there a tag reunion? I always say, well, why weren't you there when we were playing? <laughs> you know, or were you? Maybe you were. Who knows? Yeah. But you know, there's the YouTube record. You know, there's a lot of old shows that are on available there. But uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I always, whenever I get done with something, I'm done with it. And I move on and I move forward and I uh, don't look back. And yeah. I think there's uh, way too many bands. In my opinion, there's a lot of bands that have stayed together way past their their welcome. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. I won't get into naming, but there's a lot of obvious ones out there. For sure. Um, but yeah, I, who knows? So, as I mentioned to you before we started the recording, is that Dig Me Out is all about the overlooked, underappreciated albums from the 90s. And so I like to ask artists that I interview uh, for your recommendation for an album that maybe the hosts can review someday. Is there anything that that you just simply can't understand how more people didn't hear about it from the 90s? Hmm. Not really. I mean, uh, I can't think, you know, to be honest, I was so busy during the nineties that, uh, we were on tour nine months out of the year. Yeah. I, I completely missed the, the twin peaks thing that was going on, you know, the oh, yeah. craze around that and David Lynch. I completely missed that. Um, <laughs> but so I'm only aware of music that we we're doing and that we were playing with. And that was pretty much my life. You know, yeah. I, I mean, certainly we would listen to 
uh, songs in the band and whatnot. And but uh, I can't think of anybody to be honest. Sorry. No, no, that's that's totally fine, and that, that makes it that's funny because um, I, I I do think about that. I am a TV watcher, and I always I always wondered if fans when you're on the road miss out on on like you sort of miss a part of pop culture yeah and probably not as much anymore because there's netflix sure. and all the streaming services and everybody's got a you know a huge computer on their person all the time but sure. uh yeah I, I i don't know well very good i think i've run through just about everything um you've got an album coming out pretty soon and I, i'm assuming that in this digital age people can find it pretty easily uh anything, yes anything you want to plug anything you want to direct people to absolutely um the record it's going to be coming out on vinyl it's called forgotten sciences and it's a uh, kind of a personal journey and a uh a note to self about a lot of things that I've gone through in my life and to remind me of what's important and what's not. Um, but, uh, it's going to be coming out on LP, uh, CD, uh, and it's going to be out through MVD audio. And, uh, I also, if anybody wants to find my stuff, you can go to Thomas Andrew Doyle.bandcamp.com. And I've got, two other releases that I've put out this year so far. Um, and you can find them there. And I'm also going to have another one after Forgotten Sciences comes out as well. So oh, nice. awesome. I decided that I wanted to have all my music come out this year for albums, full lengths, because I'd been stuck in the studio recording and mixing and mastering everybody else's music. And I was kind of like, man, when am I going to get time to do mine? And uh, yeah. I allocated two months to, at the end of the year last year to start going in that direction and did so there you go that's and awesome. you can also go to taddoyle.com to find out more information that's probably the best resource do you ever go to discogs and see what tad records are selling for no that, that would depress me <laughs> well, I can especially tell you since stuff. you know i've always had a, a i've I always had a uh uh, a dislike for record collectors yes for that reason um because they i mean it's a business it's another business you know they they try to whatever i don't need to go into it you know whoever yep, else is listening knows yeah <laughs> but no i haven't i was just i was just looking at the daisy single and just judging whether that's something that is that readily available or whether it's um, limited and it's limited what it's going for and um if anybody's got a copy, uh, I was gonna say hang on to it, um, but but it, 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 there's a couple of people selling it for 110 bucks right now. Oh, great! Which is probably what it cost you to make it, right? <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> no, actually, uh, that that cost me uh, about 650 bucks to make those songs. And you said that was your tax return, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, I absolutely appreciate you taking the time. It, this is always a thrill for me to be able to, so many years later, go back and talk to people that I've listened to in my car on CDs. Uh, you know, the CD era is long, not 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 totally gone, but but it's definitely a, a things have changed quite a bit. So it is cool for me to be able to talk to, to people this many years later. So I appreciate you taking the time. 
Well, thank you, Chip. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and uh, it's been fun. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. 